Welcome to Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast. You just missed the most compelling 27 minutes of a podcast ever recorded. I've been sitting here with my uh, guest, JJ Anselme, who wrote this really cool book about Rock Spring, Wyoming. We're getting into it. We're talking about suicide, corn, all of this, and your dumb shit host didn't push the record button. But now the record button has uh, been pushed and uh, Anyway, nice visiting with you, JJ. Yeah, yeah. See you later, man. No worries, dude. <clears throat> the story of tech, man. It's all good. Yeah. Well, JJ, do this. I hate to make you repeat yourself, but tell me who you are. I was, uh, sure. we were introduced by Michael Patrick Smith, the good yep. hand, who had written a book. And uh, you were kind enough to send me a copy of your book, which I actually read. I've, I've got a goal of reading one book a month. Nice this yeah. year, so check the box. I've uh, I've done it done it once, but I was trying to figure out who you are, and it kind of says writer grew up in Rock Spring, rock dude. So, yeah, I mean, um, that's pretty much it. Before I was ever a writer, I was a little, you know, heavy metal Hessian kid. Um, I think that music, you know, really grabbed me, having grown up in a, a boom town, which is as you know, the subject of the book, um, you know, that music just always kind of made sense to me on, on a deep level, you know, when I kind of found it when I was 12 and 13, which I think is when you really start stepping into your own as a fan and you start really like developing tastes that aren't shaped by your parents necessarily. Circa, circa what year are you 12 or 13? When, it, when, when is that? Yeah, yeah. Wait, so I was born in 85. So let's see how fucking horrible my math is. So 97, I was 12. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So you're kind of you're kind of the second half of the 90s coming in. And so yeah. you missed Smells Like Teen Spirit by uh, by Nirvana. And, and we had this world where literally the number one song in America was Every Rose Had Its Thorn, yeah. Has Its Thorn by Poison and all the glam metal guys wore makeup and hair and all of a sudden these dudes show up in plaid shirts and they sound like black Sabbath, you know? Yeah. So, so, so who was, so you're 12, you're 13, you were kind of throwing out earlier when we were talking that you like black Sabbath and and the like, but who was, who was kind of your jam? What sort of got you into into music? Yeah, man. I, I knew Sabbath and, some kind of random stuff I'd see on the radio. And I did know Nirvana, I, you know, grew up watching MTV and at like in retrospect, what seems kind of its golden age of like when you could just turn on the TV and actually discover new music, you know, it had a productive element to it. It wasn't just shitty reality TV, which is super entertaining, but I think there's more value in what they used to do. <laughs> but, um, yeah, man, the first thing that really hit home with me in a in a huge way where I was like, this is my favorite band. I was writing their name on every notebook. I had to have every shirt. It was it was corn for sure. Oh, cool. Um, Did you have you seen the uh, Netflix special on Woodstock '99? I haven't watched that one, but I watched the HBO um series. And I remember when Woodstock '99 happened. And just like how much as, you know, a 14 year old kid, I wished I could have been there. And then, then of course, I'm like, you're so lucky that you could, <laughs> you, you had nothing to do with that because what a fucking nightmare, man. I mean, it, you know, the, check out that Woodstock 99. It's, it's actually a yeah. great, a great watch. You know, it's a perfect, just kind of turn it on and, and, you know, just watch one night. But the, the back to back of a limp biscuit going yeah. crazy and look cheese boy right here i love me some lent biscuit totally and then followed up with corn i mean yeah. just the the way they threw the crowd into the tizzy was just amazing oh it's nuts that footage when when corn starts that first song is it's unforgettable dude it, it, and i think that song itself is fucking insane in, in its own right but man yeah you're right and it's it's funny in the other documentary 
how the promoters just still refuse to take any responsibility for like creating just this horrible disaster of a festival where people were literally bathing in shit, you know, and waters were like 10 bucks in, in 99, which is like fucking crazy, you know? Yeah. Still blame it all. They're like, ah, that Fred Durst. I'm like, shut the fuck up. What he was supposed to do, dude. Yeah. Fred, Fred, Fred Durst did. I, so this is kind of wild you bring up corn because I've got a corn story and I don't think I've ever shared this with the podcast before. And so I'll just kind of lay it out on you because it's a crazy story and it kind of will wrap into to your book. Uh, so this is called eight years ago. I'm going through um, a separation, which ultimately, unfortunately, wound up in divorce. I mean, couples counseling with my wife. And, um, anyway, we, we go to couples counseling on a Monday. It's, you know, 57 minutes into our 60 minute session when, uh, my ex-wife's like, Hey, I, I need to tell you something. I filed for divorce this morning. And I was like, well, what? Yeah. Um, but I was supposed to get on a plane in a couple of hours and go fundraise. So I was going to be out of town that week, raising money and we, you know, me, Kim therapists all just decided, okay go out of town and we'll just deal with this when we get back. Maybe the, the break will be good. So devastated, distraught, all that stuff. I get on a plane, I sit down, guy sits next to me. And what's weird is a really good friend of mine got on the plane and sat literally the road behind me. So I'm okay. kind of sitting there and this guy turns to me and says, Hey, did you know I almost died? I was literally five minutes from death. And this amazing thing happened that saved my life. And I was oh, like, well, yeah. given that we just met, no, I didn't know that, but lay it on me. So he tells this amazing story about getting sick. He had to go to the hospital. Uh, the doctor said, you need surgery. Uh, OR just happened to open up that afternoon. He got surgery. When they got in, the surgeon was like, you die if you get surgery in two weeks. It's this crazy tale. Anyway. Yeah. Just this amazing story. And I really wanted to share with this guy. This guy's name was Eric. He seemed like a great guy. But my buddy's sitting right behind me. Right. So anyway, we get off the plane. My buddy walks off. And I turn to Eric. I go, hey, man, my wife filed for divorce this morning. Thank you for talking to me. I'm sorry I couldn't share. It's just that's a really good friend of mine. And Eric looks at me and he goes, hey, Chuck, do you know how many times in my 27 years I have talked to the person next to me on a plane? And I said, Nah. And he goes, never. You're the wow. first person I've ever talked to on a plane. And I did it because God told me I needed to talk to you. And I was like, okay. So we, we actually kind of said a, a prayer and he was really cool. He wound up babysitting me for a year or two going through the divorce. <laughs> wow. But the reason I tell that story is the tie in with corn is Brian Welch, who I think we were talking earlier, you said he goes by head. That's yeah, his yeah. nickname in the band. The guitar player uh, tells the story in his autobiography about sitting at a computer ready to end it all. I don't know if there's a gun there or whatever, but you know, the, right. the situation is pretty dire. And he got an email from his best friend, a guy named Eric. Yeah. And Eric said, God told me to tell you that I love you. And Brian kind of freaks out. What the hell? you know, or is it calls Eric, what the hell are you doing? And Eric's just like, man, God told me to tell you, I love you. Anyway, Brian, of course, winds up going to church, turning his life around, getting straight off drugs. I yeah. think in the autobiography, the email is even, an, you know, one of the pictures. I got this email, it saved my life. And that's wow. the guy, Eric. And uh, anyway, so it was, yeah, it was just crazy. Yeah, it's gnarly. And um Dude, yeah, there's as much of an atheist as I like to um, say that I am. Yeah, those distress calls that go out into the universe, it's it, it seems real to me, man. I mean, you know, to get into a real example real fast when I was, you know, as you, as you know, you can tell just from reading the jacket copy of my book, there's a super high suicide rate where I'm from and in Wyoming as a whole. And um, I definitely, you know, grappled with a lot of thoughts, you know, in that direction when I was, um, like 19 and 20, especially. And I, you know, as a typical dude, and I never said anything about it 
to anybody and really tried to play it cool. But I remember my best friend just like totally randomly one day, it sounded, it was like a, it felt like a total non sequitur for like what we were talking about. And he, he just said something about like, you know, essentially like, don't, you shouldn't ever think about that. And it was similar of like, the subtext was like, I love you, dude. And people love you. And it it just, man, it stuck with me as like a, whoa, what the fuck? <laughs> you know, <laughs> moment of, um, I still think I'm an atheist, but I don't know, dude, I've gotten, if you would have asked me if I was an atheist when I was like 16, I would say like, yeah, fuck, you know, whatever. But now I'm like, yeah, I guess, man. I don't fucking know. <laughs> yeah. Well, so I've got the world's greatest priest. I, I go to an Episcopal church um, and his name's Patrick. He's actually been on the podcast a couple of times. Amazing guy, down to earth guy. Uh, we'd love to have him on the podcast with us because he likes music and all that. But anyway, I was telling him the story about Eric and I'm just like, you know, man, that was amazing. I really needed it. And God sent me an angel and this guy was just perfect. Patrick looks at me and goes, hey, man, if, if God's going to send an angel, usually really fucking good. God knows right. what he's doing on this shit. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, tell me, do this kind of kind of talk to me about Rock Springs, you know, why you wrote the book growing up there, because um, uh, like I said, it was a great read. I enjoyed reading it. Well, thanks, man. So, you know, Rock Springs, I think the older I get, the more I see of just like, it seems like such an American place, you know? And, um, yeah, I think everything about it from its, its ups and its downs, its positives and its negatives are just so American to me. And so anyway, the town, you know, started in the late 1800s. They, this dude who's doing some, you know, geological surveys, they found some coal in the area and it was kind of, couple of years later is when uh, Union Pacific was deciding where they would lay tracks, um, you know, through Wyoming and there was coal there. So it only made sense that they would do that because, you know, UP used to be a big coal, coal player for a long time. I don't know if they still have any stake in that or whatever, but um, so yeah, it, you know, coal was really the deciding factor in that town even existing as a settlement. And that's where really Whereabouts in Wyoming are we? Kind of South, the- southwest. Southwest. Okay. Yeah. So there's so yeah, just to paint a picture, it's not the um, you know, it's not Jackson Hole and Yellowstone, I think, which is the popular like when you say Wyoming, that's kind of what people tend to think of. And it's it's super pretty up there and it's, you know, just kind of crushingly beautiful. But um where I'm from, it it, it ain't like that. It's more um yeah, man, from, you know, like East Texas type shit of like um, just plains and lots of wind. But then it, it gets cold as fuck. And so you get, you know, the cold plus the windshield and the winters and it's it'll drop down to like 20 degrees below zero more. My dad texted me the other day and he said it'd gone to like 40 degrees below zero, <laughs> which is just. Wow. Fucked up. Yeah, that is. yeah. And so it's it's not like the Yellowstone type things. It's, it's way more like open spaces, prairie plains. And so, yeah, man, is a, is a coal mining town. And, you know, since it, it wasn't really aesthetically pleasing in a lot of ways, the people who wound up there in a lot of ways were, you know, either like laborers in the, in the coal mines and stuff, or people who were kind of had services for those laborers pretty much. And I think that's kind of been the heart of the town for a long time. And, um, you know, there's some crazy shit that happened. Um, UP was employing a bunch of um, Chinese immigrants um, in the late 1800s. And they just figured, like, why not just throw them in here with this mix of, like, <laughs> all these other types of people in Wyoming and see how it goes. And, of course, it didn't <laughs> fucking go well, you know. So there was this pretty brutal racial riot. Um in the late 1800s there. And so the town always has always had this kind of violent, you know, kind of tinge to it. And I think there was that that happened and then, um, which was 1885. And then from there, it was kind of a standard Western coal mining boomtown. I think when I watched Deadwood, a lot of that 
kind of rang true to me because it was like, you know, you get a lot of prostitution and just kind of wild west type shit, man, of people who kind of want to do whatever they want to do and can do it in these types of places because there's not as many people. And um, yeah, you get, you know, you end up getting a lot more men than women, which is kind of like why the prostitution ends up going in there. And so there's a lot of factors that was kind of a standard coal mining town for a long time. But then in the seventies, it went through this huge boom, which is really where my kind of story starts in a lot of ways, because it's when my parents met. And that's like during that boom is like why my mom's family even moved there in the first place. And so in a lot of ways, I'm a child of that boom of that seventies boom, which was, there was this huge um, coal fueled uh, power plant that opened just outside town that created just a shitload of jobs and really high paying jobs. You know, it's, it's, you could suddenly make a living that's like comparable, if not higher than a lot of people, if they had a college degree, you know, and it's like just straight out of high school or even without graduating high school, you can make some damn good money out there in the mines or my dad was in the um, warehouse. And then he, he dumped a lot of the, they had to dump all this like coal ash that after they would burn it. And so that was his job for a long time. Um, and yeah, man, it's just a gnarly town. And, you know, during that seventies boom, you, again, you just got more of the prostitution and drugs and it ended up capturing the interest of Dan rather in 60 minutes. Cause suddenly here's this little town in Wyoming that is, you know, has a lot going on. There's a, a street through town called K street where there was essentially open prostitution and it was kind of allowed by the old timers to exist. And Dan rather caught wind of that and, you know, went there with 60 minutes and did, they ended up doing two episodes in 77 about it. And, um, man, that's, it's, it's a shitty reporting. It's really bad reporting. <laughs> well, most, most of the time it is. I, uh, you know, my fellow Texan Dan rather, I'm not, not a, uh, not a big fan of, but yeah. what, what I found kind of interesting reading about, <clears throat> this small town, the prostitution, is I went in kind of with the lens of this is an extraction story. Totally. And this, you know, this boom and bust cycle happens to all these towns and you get all of the prostitution, the drugs, et cetera, and you build infrastructure that then when the bust happens, doesn't get supported. And, you know, isn't there a better way for us to to handle extraction type stuff? Totally. But then trying to be intellectually honest, I grew up in a small town in Texas, Richmond. I live there today. It's about 25 miles outside of Houston. We had Mud Alley. I mean, the the administration, if you will, in Richmond kind of said, you stay on that side of the tracks. We won't do anything about it. Totally. And so we had a little bit of that, too. You know, Texas had the famous uh, chicken ranch in LaGrange that we did the movie on and that ZZ Top sang about. And so. I was I was torn between this as hey this extraction story versus no nah, this is kind of the story of America. Yeah. Truth be told, it's probably all of that. It really is, man. Yeah, it really is all that. And yeah, it's you know I I, I don't think it was unique. And I I know a lot of people who have in, in that way, especially compared to a lot of Texas towns. I know a lot of buddies and shit like that who who moved to Texas because you know their experiences in oil field tech or whatever they do and they can find a lot. I know a lot of people have found ended up finding good jobs in Texas, but yeah, the way it happened in rock Springs was just so fucking extreme. And I think that boom was huge in itself. You know, it was just like suddenly the population of the town literally doubled overnight. And so you just have this town of like, there's very limited housing and apartments available and shit like that. So dudes are making a ton of money, but then you have guys who are just like living on top of each other in these little trailers and shit like that, or just living in intense, you know, and trying to find a good job and shit like that. And the Dan Rather coverage really took it in a, in a strange direction because you could really see like what happens when national media coverage descends on a small town. And to me, it was like an invasive species, you know, and, because after that coverage, then the you know the local officials were embarrassed, and essentially said, "Okay, we have to crack down on this 
we can't just let the prostitution exist as openly anymore. And we have to look like we're doing something because right now they felt they had been looked, you know, made to look kind of stupid or just, you know, kind of greasy or whatever. And so they ended up bringing in this dude named Ed Cantrell and he was like this, um, just this tough ass little cowboy sheriff, you know, and he, um, they kind of tasked him with cleaning up the town and he was really, yeah, I think he did it in a lot of ways or, you know, and you know how authorities and officials are, there's always like a million layers behind the person who's doing the action. So of course it wasn't just Cantrell and there's a lot of people pull, pulling the strings and shit like that. But, um, Cantrell ended up bringing in this, this dude, Michael Rosa, an undercover narcotics agent who, who had lived in New York to kind of help, you know, get rid of some of that shit. And, um, then their relationship just exploded and went south. And long story short, Ed Cantrell ended up shooting his own undercover agent in the back of a car. Um, you know, not, not that long after those 60 minutes episodes came out. And so it's been just this, like, I, I think, yeah, you're right. The boomtown and extraction stories are all there, but the way rock Springs has experienced it is so extreme, man. But I, I think that's why it's good to use the town as a lens because then you can really see like, okay, here's, here's what happens when we truly like when our only source of our economy is extraction, like here's really some of the paths and stuff and it, it can take. And of course, there's so many layers. Like I said, I think the Dan Rather shit is. It, it reminds me of um, like when you have, you know, kind of somebody older in your family and they discover YouTube and Facebook and like the effect that that has on people. I think the 60 Minutes episodes were like that to people because they even people in town believed all the shit. They just believed everything that Dan Rather was kind of presenting to them even though a lot of it was like super sensationalized and out of context and all that stuff the thing i want one kind of like side note just for history that in the book was so cantrell goes to trial and he was defended by gary spence i mean yeah, the, the world famous defense lawyer so yeah well that was i think as far as i know that was a case that got jerry um made him famous and as I tried to interview him, but I ended up interviewing his um, stepson, who's a really cool dude named um, Chris Hawks. And, um, you know, he, he had such an interesting, just different take on Cantrell than like, you know, because then, of course, once the Cantrell murder happened, then the media came back in and, you know, there was like an A&E on it. And you had like New York Times doing coverage on the murder and stuff like that. But. I think a lot of it was really, it was really easy to just kind of dismiss Cantrell as a murderer and then see, you know, Spence getting him off as like, oh, you know, classic good old boy shit. But talking to Chris Hawks, man, it was just such as good nuance to the story of like who Ed Cantrell actually was. And he was talking about like just growing up with the dude on the ranch and learning how to kind of handle a ranch from the guy and stuff like that that really give a human element that, you know, I think is kind of missing when you just focus on those big sensational stories. It, so, so something I was thinking reading the book and maybe there is no answer to this. Maybe you got a take on it. It just seems like, you know, you have the boom cycle of the extraction and you get the flood of people in yeah. And one of the things Michael Patrick Smith and I talked about when he came on the podcast is, you know, Navy SEALs actually look for applicants that have had a lot of trauma in their life that oh, were wow. abused because they are used to running on 100 percent adrenaline totally. all the time. And that serves you really well as a Navy SEAL. Right. And to some degree, Michael had a uh, theory that the oil field was similar because yeah. it's a dangerous freaking job. I mean, you totally. can die at any moment. It's very challenging. So people that can run on adrenaline are probably really good out there. So a lot of times the people he was hanging out with in the bar, I mean, they were turning off the adrenaline drinking and yeah. the like. So 
I get kind of, you get the boom, you get the money, you draw people like that into the community. Totally. Was there not an element though of being able to draw a line where that's the boom and the bust will go away, but us longtime residents here that live here are going to, in the boom time, take some money aside, get our kids to college, Right. And have a normal life, or does it does it just so dominate the culture of a city that you can't do anything about it? I I think I think yeah, there is. It was cool to talk to some longtime residents, and they were like, you know, in all honesty, all that stuff going on didn't really affect us that much, and I think that was cool. But then you got to think too. A lot of people who call call that place home are kind of the type of dudes that you're talking about who can really function in these like super dangerous industrial jobs and do a good job with it and not get themselves and everyone else killed. And then, you know, you have that kind of like super intense work experience and then you're trying to find some way to turn it off. And really that's, that's kind of, even when the boom goes away, that's still the, the economy there, you know, and the labor of like working in coal mines and shit like that. And so I think yeah, a lot of the town's residents are, are really like those, that type of people too, of like, man, me and my dad's friends or me and my friends, um, dads, you know, who came of age during that boom. Um, they just never really learned how to turn that, <laughs> how to like go into mellow mode because yeah, I think the adrenaline would get pumping when they're partying too. And it's just extremes from every angle. And they kind of have a hard time, like trying to find some, you know, some kind of um, quiet space in their own minds, I guess. Another thing I thought cool kind of that may have worked into that dynamic, and this almost sounds silly to say, but I, I actually was believing it, particularly when I was reading it, is the wind. Yeah. I mean, just the freaking wind yeah. drives you crazy. I need to go drink this off, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So that's just another whole other beast in itself of like, so you have all this labor and the partying and stuff that naturally goes with it. And then you take into account that the wind is just knocking you on your ass constantly. And even if it's in the middle of the summer and warm and you're getting blasted by wind, it's, you know, it, <laughs> it's not usually that, that super fun to go, go out into. And then especially during the winter, when you get any wind and it starts, you know, um, dropping the temperature temperatures down with the wind chill, and it really starts getting into the like negative twenties and thirties. And my dad texted me the other day and said it was into the negative forties, which was, which is extreme, but you know, not totally like out of my experience of it for sure. Um, yeah, I think that's really going to press you to be indoors and, if you can find a constructive way to deal with like all that indoors time, good on you. But I don't think a lot of it's, it's hard, you know, it's really hard, man, to deal with that boredom. And a lot of people do just, um, you know, look for it in the bottle or needle or kind of whatever it is. I was like, you know, sort of, I got it because one time um, I went to Homer, Alaska for four right. or five days and I went July 4th. Okay. And so anyway, we land in Homer. Uh Buddy's playing in a bar, his band. So we go see it. And they, you know, this is Alaska, so they play till one in the morning, right? And right. I'm sitting there, you know, on vacation, pounding away at vodka. I walk outside and it's perfectly sunny, right? That's fucking I mean, weird. <clears throat> you know, they have sun, I think, twenty-three hours a day during the summer. And I swore off vodka for two years because I'm like, holy shit, I'm seeing, you know. Yeah, <laughs> but, but you hear about how the the darkness during the winter induces yep. a lot of the same thing you're talking about. Anxiety, have to be inside. It's cold. Yeah, find things to to do. And hell, the sun kind of did it to me for four days, and I like sunshine. Yeah, man, and I I don't <laughs> think you know considering that kind of extreme environment that it's any coincidence that. Alaska and Wyoming are always kind of going back and forth for who has the highest suicide rate of any state in the country, man. And um, I think that's an unfortunate reality of, of all those things. And 
if it's not just the environment, then again, you know, you get those harsh jobs and it, it busts your ass, man. Literally, you know, my dad's back is um, just like totally fucked up. And it, it was at a pretty young age for him, you know, in his kind of early 50s when he was had herniated discs in his back and couldn't really work out there anymore. And that's a pretty common you know, rock spring story. And, and so again, it's just all these swirling factors that intermingle. And then the result is, yeah, you get a lot of suicide and addiction, man. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So I'm sorry. I'm like putting you under the spotlight on the book review here, but uh, another, another thought I had reading the book and there were, there were definitely some elements, some evidence, but um, if I if you made me give you an answer to this question, do the people actually, despite its problems, love Rock Springs? I don't know what the answer would be to that. So I'd yeah. love to hear your take on what you think people would I say to the, that. I think the answer is yes. And to me, that was one of the biggest gifts that I got from this book project because, you know, to kind of back up into my own youth as a kid, you know, listening to metal, um, I fucking hated growing up there, man. It was, you know, cause you don't understand all these historical contexts and, you know, kind of like the social and economic factors of why it is like it is and stuff like that. And so, you know, as a kid, I was just like, I fucking hate this place, dude. I don't, I do not like this. You know, me and my friends, our dads partied. And so like our way of rebelling was to be straight edge, which is, you know, <laughs> is funny and um you know not built to last for sure but um yeah i think you know considering all those things and like the chip on my shoulder i've carried with me for years and even well into my 20s writing this book and talking to people who just went through the craziest fucking trauma you know there from suicidal ideation to like all of us have known just multiple people who've killed themselves, you know, which is to me, just that's kind of one thing I realized, like when I first moved away from Rock Springs, I I remember having the realization of like, dude, it's not normal to know, like, I've known a a dozen people who've killed themselves, you know, not all close friends necessarily, but at least acquaintances and more than half of those were people who were directly in my life and shit like that. And I realized that that was not normal you know i was like man that is weird that is very strange but when you're there it it is it's part of the culture it's like what everybody grows up with and so long story short i had a you know big chip on my shoulder about the place man and you know i've seen some loved ones go through some just gnarly shit there and i think the chip on the shoulder is you know understandable in a lot of ways but as i was doing the interviews from this book and hearing from people who experienced way worse trauma than I ever did or could even really imagine I uh, invariably people would say toward the end, like, you know, that place made me resilient as shit. And, and not only that, it teaches you to kind of, it, it really gives you like a DIY ethic in a lot of ways, because you have to learn to make something out of nothing. Like, you know, the music scene when we were young was a perfect example of like, there's no punk or metal scene. And, what we created might've been like laughable to people in cities, but we fucking did it ourselves, man. And there's a lot of value in those lessons and shit like that. And people I talked to invariably said, like, I would not want to have grown up in another place. And to me, like, you know, you had, it, it, it's, it's mind blowing to hear that from people who like, they're talking about just this crazy homophobia, you know, growing up as a gay, gay kid, there, just like gnarly racism and, this is constant barrage of negative shit like that. And still at the end of the interview, they're like, I would not want to be from anywhere else. And I think really that's the gift that I've carried with carried with me after this project of like, I think I've always been proud to be from Wyoming and from Rock Springs. But after that, I'm like, dude, I'm so thankful to be from there and not just like, I live in Long Beach, California now. And, you know, it's in LA County and, I'm just so grateful that I know how to cope with like, you know, not a lot going on or like you can just always do something for yourself and it just gives you a different perspective. I think it really came in handy during COVID, you know? 
That that's interesting because when I read the book and this I you know when I read the book I I could detect some you know but I loved it here because that that that's said a few times during the book or I'm glad I'm from here. I didn't see that come out and that may have just been me missing it. So that's really cool to hear because I almost saw it as a little bit of Stockholm syndrome. You know, we were all in this horrible place and, uh, you know, we didn't know any better. That's why we're, we're glad we're, we were from there. So it's, it's cool to hear you say that because I, you know, I, I, I do totally believe that, you know, growing up in my small town, Richmond, Texas, we all got along. We were about 50% Hispanic, 25% black, 25% white. We all got along pretty well. And I think it was because we were so terrorized by the football coaches. I mean, they used every racial slur they could at all of us. I mean, they would call me the N word. I was like, what, huh? What is it? But they all yelled at us. So we all had to bind together, you know, it's like. Totally. uh, Yeah. So now that's, that's, that's interesting to, to, to hear. Cause. uh, Yeah. it's, It's in the, um, the last chapter is called what we've learned from the sagebrush and it's really dedicated to that stuff. And I think even the, the sagebrush is like the main plant life there, you know, it's like a lot of planes and you can see forever and it can seem kind of bleak, but you really have to just learn how to look at it from a different perspective. And to me now I'm like sagebrush is not only pretty, but it's just this tough motherfucking plant, you know, like sagebrush can take whatever the fuck you throw at it, dude. <laughs> so I think in a lot of ways, the people who grow up there, you're kind of like the sagebrush. We, you know, you have, you have to be resilient and like, man, what a quality to have as a human adult, you know, if you can be resilient, dude, that's life in a lot of ways. That's, that's uh that's really cool to hear the, uh, I worry about my kids growing up because uh, my kids have been handed everything, you know, sure. humanly possible, great, great education and, and all that. And I think it was Kinky Friedman that said the worst preparation for life is a happy childhood. You know, <laughs> and there's, there's, there's a lot of truth in that. So JJ, do this for me. Um, I'm going to throw the book in front of the camera so people can see the cover. Give us the name. Give us where people can get it. Sure. And give us give us your plug on the book. Yeah, man. So the book is called Out Here on Our Own, An Oral History of an American Boomtown. <clears throat> um, written by me, JJ Anselmi. And then um, I was lucky enough to collaborate with this super talented uh, photographer named Jordan Utley, which was kind of when I was working on the project and I... It, it like fell into place that Jordan could take photographs for it. It was like that final puzzle piece, man. And, but yeah, it's, you know, I think my first book is a, is a memoir about growing up in rock Springs. So it's, yeah. Yeah. The, the photography was awesome. Oh yeah, man. And you can go to his site, Jordan Utley and, and see some of that stuff, you know, more blown up and order prints or, you know, if that strikes your fancy, um, but my first book was a you know memoir I've grown up in Rock Springs, and it definitely is more of that kind of like chip on your shoulder type perspective, which I wrote it when I was <clears throat> you know I was like twenty six to like twenty nine when I wrote it, so I was pretty young still, you know, and then this book um it it's all other people's stories, and so it's just to me a way a really fun project to work on, and that like I was doing interviews with all these people that some of them I knew and then some of them I didn't. And then, you know, we really got to know each other on a different level. And man, when people are telling me some of their stories about kind of like what I mentioned of what it was like to grow up as a black kid there, what it's like to grow up as a gay kid and a place where it was like pretty clear that, you know, you, you weren't welcome in a lot of ways from, from some people, not from everybody, of course, you know, um, but I think the you know the impact ends up happening unfortunately from the some shitty people. Um, but when people are telling me those stories, I was just like, "Damn, dude, this isn't just my story anymore. This is like dead fucking serious." Of these people trusting me with their stories, and 
So they're trusting me to try and put it into this book to actually capture where we're from. And hopefully I did it, but yeah, they seem to have liked it, man. But I was, you know, it was intense in a lot of ways for sure. Because like I said, those, those stories aren't mine, dude, those experiences, you know? And, and, you know, as I've, so, you know, I guess now I'm kind of up to, I've probably done a hundred of these podcasts or so, and I do another one called BDE, Big Digital Energy. We call it the summary of the energy business for people that think Jim Cramer sucks. Sure. But, uh, you know, so I've done maybe a hundred of those as well. The, the 200 podcasts I've done, I've become incredibly convinced that oral histories are a unique medium. They, yeah. just, they just are. They really and are. actually oral histories where multiple people are sharing the stories, either collaborating or in the same room or whatever, is really powerful stuff and definitely need to, needs to be captured. So I, I love the fact you did that in the book. Thanks, man. And, and like you said, I mean, as you well know, you know, there's, there's some real human connection that happens during the interviews and all that stuff that is just so valuable. And, you know, I was doing these interviews from, I came up with the idea of, to do it as a oral or to tell the story of the town as an oral history in like late 2019. And then, you know, the shit happened and I originally planned to go back to Wyoming in summer of 2020 and do all the interviews. And in all honesty, I probably would have done it if um, my wife also got pregnant, <laughs> like during the early part of that summer. So at that point, you know, I was like, there's no fucking way I'm like jeopardizing <laughs> anything that's going on in the home front. And so I did all the interviews by phone. And man, during that isolation to feel connected with people from my hometown and just hearing their experiences of like, I knew a lot of the people, like I said, and, you know, was friends with a lot of people and um, like, you know, knew some acquaintances and stuff were dealing with racism and stuff like that. But actually hearing the stories, man, I was like, holy fuck, dude, I had no idea it was like that. And I think through yeah. that, we became closer, you know, I think it's healing for a lot of people. Hopefully I know it's healing for me and uh, man, what a, process of to do a book versus you know like otherwise you're literally alone at your desk you know kind of just writing or like doing some research and stuff but otherwise writing is a pretty you know it, it doesn't have to it's no brainer that it's a pretty solitary exercise so i think to actually make it social was was really cool it, it was also like um you know so many moving pieces and and shit like that i'm I'm working on some novels now because I want to get back to the solitary shit for a little while. But I, I will probably write another oral history someday. Yeah, now the, um, the kind of the thing I'll, I'll close on because you just teed it up perfectly, literally came from early in the book. I think Thomas Cullen said, I grew up with the feeling that it was somehow disloyal to harbor thoughts of leaving uh, Rock Springs. Yeah, man. You know, that's that's that kind of personal connection that even bad shit and all this going on. Yeah. I still felt enough of a connection that I didn't want to I didn't want to leave or at least talk about, you know, talk about leaving. Yeah. His his story was so cool. And talk about like, you know, people say like Rock Springs will always be there for its own. And I really saw that time and again in this project and that like. Once I knew to write, write an oral history, I was like, well, how the fuck do I cover like the early 1900s as an oral history? Who was alive during then, you know? And so the local museum let me use huge portions from a book they published, which is Thomas Cullen's book. It's like, man, what a fucking cool Rock Springs thing that they did that. And his experiences are just like you said, it's it's so cool that he he found that pride and the the value and his experience is no joke, dude. His dad was going into those old school coal mines where they're hauling the shit out with fucking horses. <laughs> and like, you know, death is just constant from the cave-ins. And I think one of the things that I will never forget in his memoir that I included in my book was he talked about the miners' tattoos. And it was what he would say with yeah. his dad is that 
you know, like they had all these small cuts on their hands, but then the coal dust would get in there and heal in their skin. So it looked like a a bunch of little tiny tattoos. It's like, what a fucking cool metaphor for the place, dude. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that's, that's wild. Well, dude, you were really cool to uh, come on the podcast. It was, it was great to talk about and I really enjoyed the book and I would, uh, I would encourage anyone that, uh, that listen, go grab it. Where can we get it? Amazon, all the typical places. Yeah. Typical places, Amazon, or, um, if you want to support indie bookstores, uh, bookshop.org is always a good one. You can also get it directly from the publisher, um, Bison Books, which is through University of Nebraska. But yeah, thanks so much, Chuck. I've been excited to come on this. And um, especially from somebody from the industry, you know, from the actual oil and gas industry. And I've done some research listening to your other podcasts. And um, it's fascinating, man. What a fucking crazy industry. And I'd love to hear more about your experience at some point, man. Of just um, yeah, let's let's do it. I'll get out to California and we'll uh, we'll go grab a uh, we'll go grab a beer because uh, the the one thing I do believe about our industry, and I don't know if I'm in the majority, but I'll or I'm in the minority, but I will say this is look, bad shit happens in oil and gas. Yeah, totally. It does a lot of good, and I think getting kind of all of the stories out, yeah, and being honest and being real with it is the best thing we can do to protect our industry. I think if we cover things up or we sweep it under the rug or we put a litmus test on people, you know, unless this guy, you know, votes Republican and is pro-life and does this, this, and this, we're not, we're not going to support, you know, that, that that person. We're going to wind up with a tent that has like 12 people in it supporting oil and gas. So so I, I love hearing this story because, you know, extraction and the boom bust. I mean, it's we can't run from that. We got to own that in our industry. No. It's just that's what we do. And and it doesn't right. mean we, we shouldn't try to learn from it and do better next time. Totally, man. And I, I don't think I'm not one of those people who totally says like, yeah, I, I really especially the older I get, I try and see those positives and. Man, I think, you know, kind of like hydraulic fracturing and shale, the thing I keep coming back to is just, it makes a lot of sense to me is American energy security. And so really like you got to weigh, like, are we going to develop our own shit? And like you said, like, we got to look at all the negatives that come with it because there are negatives like anything else in life. Or do we continue to be just totally dependent on you know, places like Saudi Arabia and shit that are just, just very unpredictable and <laughs> they don't have and, the U.S. best interest at heart, you know? And and I will say this too, they do not produce the product to the same standards we do in terms of cleanliness and focus on the environment. And, and as I always say on the podcast, you know, when it comes to the atmosphere, there's not a peeing and a non-peeing portion of the pool. You know, totally. I mean, it's one. If it if if you produce it in America, great. If you produce it in Saudi Arabia, you probably produced it a little dirtier. You know, yeah, so, definitely, hmm. man. And I really, you know, take that stuff into account. And I, I am a, you know, I'm still the, a, you know, kind of liberal leftist or whatever. Although I'm, I, it seems like we're on a similar page of like, I'm so fucking done with division, dude. I don't want to. Yeah. I'm so sick of division. I love America, man. I I really love to talk to people, and I believe in what America is and can be. And anyway, um, yes. But I think natural gas is a huge component of like you can tie that in with the renewals and have all these tiny pieces working together, or renewables and have these pieces working together to create something that in the end is better for for us as a people. You know. And and my my point is it's so important that we ought to have an intellectually honest discussion of the trade-offs. You yeah. Know? Totally. And, and you know, a, a pro oil and gas guy ought to be honest about, hey, we do cause pollution. We are, you know, uh putting CO2 in the in the air. The other side ought to be, hey, you do a lot of good. 
I mean, yeah, you want to talk really about is. the world being a better place? It really has to do with cheap energy, and yep. you know, how do we balance that coming forward? Because I'm my political leanings are I'm kind of a diehard libertarian, but I also sure. truly believe that uh, rules and regulations and all that need to be a political type process that has yeah. buy-in from a lot of people. And so totally. I need to I need to give you something for us to compromise. That way yeah. we all buy into it. If yeah. you jam stuff down at 50.1% every time, people don't buy in and you lose faith in the whole system itself. And that's really bad. It so, really is. And I think yeah. unfortunately that's seems to be where we are, you know, in America and I hope things get better. But um, yeah, man, like I said, that's one of the reasons I was really excited to come on here is I knew, you know, I'm, I'm sick of echo chambers, not only division, but I'm also sick of just echo chambers where we won't talk to each other and we only want to hear, have our own beliefs reinforced. And I'm like, that's not how we get smarter, man. And that, that's not good yeah. for you. I don't think. To no, just have your own uh, beliefs reinforced. That's uh, no, that's absolutely right. Because uh, the echo chamber can lead to a lot of dopamine being produced in your brain. Yeah. But at the end of the day, we all know too much dopamine's a bad thing. Yeah. <laughs> it just is. Yeah, man. I, I, you know, I, I tried out the Mastodon thing, as like you know, stuff was happening with my. I never thought Twitter was going to go away. I never believed that, but. I was just curious about Mastodon because, you know, the idea is that it can't be bought out, you know, by somebody like Elon Musk because it has so many servers. And I've been on there. I'm like, good God, dude, this is a fucking leftist echo chamber like no other, man. And that's coming from a little socialist, democratic kid, you know, dude, you know, I have my little <laughs> socialist hat and stuff that I, I believe all that shit. But I'm like, good God, dude, this is a fucking horrible echo chamber. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's that's so funny and i i probably should whisper this and stand it but some of my energy loud proud brethren are the same way on the other side so sure well, jj you were uh you were really cool to come on this was uh this was great and like i said to uh readers go get the book man the book's really good thanks so much chuck and um yeah man more than a pleasure to talk to you dude